Hello and welcome to the Creep Show. I'm Sarah. And now I'm Ashley. We're barreling towards 2,000 downloads and we just got added to Amazon Music, thanks Bezos, and Audible. Thank you for listening and sharing. And we are also apparently on Stitcher, which I can't find it. If anybody knows, could you message us and let us know? <laughs> we want to keep our family growing, so please join us on social media. You can find us on Instagram at the Creep Show Podcast and on Facebook at the Creep Show Podcast One and on uh, Twitter at the Creep Show uh, One, as well as our website, the Creep Show Podcast. And you like I put I added commas there for you. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> How, how's it going? Good. We have um, a doozy, a uh, pretty long story. So um, get your coffee, get your weed, get your alcohol, get your whatever you do, and um, sit down. And we're gonna talk about a cult. And I'm sorry. I guess, I guess, trigger warning, if you were in a cult, I guess it's possible somebody could be listening, um, but have you heard of Jonestown? Yeah. So, um, Jonestown was a cult. It was also known as the People's Temple, and it was started by a lovely man named Jim Jones. He looked like whenever you buy, like, if you were to go and buy uh, Elvis from Wish, that's what he looked like 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 if like he's like a wish version of elvis like that's what he looked like yeah (laughs) so james warren right james warren jones was born may 13th 1931 in rural crete indiana jones was a voracious leader who studied joseph stalin Karl marx mayo zidong i don't know if i'm saying that right uh mahatma gandhi adolf hitler and and adolf hitler So he's a banger of a guy. Um, He also developed an intense interest in religion. One writer wrote that it was due to his uh, difficulty to make friends. Childhood acquaintances called Jones a really weird kid who was obsessed with religion and death. He held funerals for dead animals and stabbed a cat to death. Yeah. A childhood... Uh, acquaintance noted that after German prisoners of war arrived in Lynn during World War II, one patted young Jones on the back of the head, to which he responded by giving the Nazi salute and shouting, Heil Hitler. Jones and a childhood friend both claimed his father was associated with the Ku Klux Klan, which had become very popular in the Depression era Indiana. Mm -hmm. Douchebags in white robes. Um, Jones recounted how he and his father argued on the issue of race and how he did not speak with his father for many, many years after he refused to allow one of Jones' black friends into his house. So, like, you're totally cool with black people, but you'll say Heil Hitler when a fucking Jewish person pats you on the back. Like, priorities, mate. You're a douchebag. Um, Jones' parents separated and Jones relocated with his mother to Richmond, Indiana. In December 1948, he graduated from Richmond High School early with honors. So he's not completely stupid. To support himself, Jones worked at an, as an orderly at Richmond's Reed Hospital and was well regarded by the senior management. However, staff members later recalled Jones exhibiting disturbing behavior 
One former coworker of Jones, with whom he had been childhood friends with, recalled an incident where Jones manhandled a patient in traction while dry shaving him, resulting in the patient's injury with a straight razor, and then gave him uh, a menacing look to the coworker. It was at Reed Hospital where Jones met nurse Marceline Baldwin, whom he married in 1949. Jones and his wife relocated to Bloomington, Indiana, where he attempted Indiana University in uh, Bloomington. There he was impressed with there he was impressed with a speech by Eleanor Roosevelt about the plight of African Americans. In 1951, the couple relocated to Indianapolis. And Jones attended Indiana University for two years and then took night classes at Butler University, earning a degree in secondary education in 1961, 10 years after enrolling. He was, I don't know what the hell he was doing for 10 years, but um, <laughs> in 1951, 20-year-old Jones began attending gatherings of the Communist Party USA in Indianapolis. He became flustered with harassment during the McCarthy hearings, particularly regarding an event that he attended with his mother focusing on Paul Robeson, after which she was harassed by FBI agents in front of her coworkers for attending. Jones also became frustrated with the persecution of open and accused communists in the U.S., especially during the trial of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Jones said he asked himself, how can I demonstrate my Marxism? The thought was, infiltrate the church, which I mean, you know, they're the most gullible. So Jones was surprised when a Methodist district superintendent helped him get a start in the church, even though he knew Jones to be a communist. In 1952, he became a student pastor at the Somerset Southside Methodist Church, but later claimed he left the church because leaders forbade him from integrating blacks into his congregation. Around this time, Jones witnessed a faith healing service at a Seventh, ba uh, seventh Day Baptist Church. He observed that it attracted people and their money and concluded that he could accomplish his goals, his social go goals, with financial resources from such services. Jones organized a mammoth religious convention to take place June 11th to the 15th, 1956, in Indianapolis's Cattle Tabernacle. Needing a well-known religious figure to draw crowds, he arranged to share the pulpit with Reverend William M. Branham, a healing evangelist and religious author who was as highly revered, revered wow, as Oral Roberts. Jones was able to begin his own church after the convention, which had various names until it became the People's Temple Christian Church Full Gospel. Could have made that a little bit longer. <laughs> Later shortened to the People's Temple. He was ordained as a minister in 1957 by the Independent Assembles of God and in 1964 by the Disciples of Christ. Jones was known to regularly study Adolf Hitler and Father Divine to learn how to manipulate members of the People's Temple. Divine told Jones personally to find an enemy and to make sure they know who the enemy is as it will unify those in the group and make them subservient to him. Jones traveled with his family to Belo Horizonte, Brazil with the idea of setting up a new temple location. After preaching at the temple about the fears of nuclear war and reading an article in the January 1962 issue of Esquire magazine, which listed the city as a safe harbor in the event of an atomic exchange. On his way to Brazil, Jones made his first trip to Guyana, which at the time was still a British colony. Jones's family rented a modest three-bedroom home in Belo Horizonte, I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong, 
Um, Jones uh, studied the local economy and receptiveness of racial minorities to his message. Although language remained a barrier, he also explored local Brazilian syncretistic, there you go, religions, careful not to portray himself as a communist in a foreign uh, territory. He spoke of an uh, apostolic, wow, um, apostolic communal lifestyle rather than of Castro or Marx. Ultimately, the lack of resources in Belo Horizonte led the family to move to Rio de Janeiro in mid-1963, where they worked with the poor in the favelas. Jones began became plagued by guilt for effectively abandoning the civil rights struggle in Indiana and possibly losing what he had tried to build there. His associate preachers in Indiana told him the temple was about to collapse without him, so he returned. After Jones received considerable criticism in Indiana for his integrationist views, the temple moved to Redwood Valley, California in 1965. In the early 1970s, the temple opened other branches in Los Angeles and San Francisco and would eventually move its headquarters to San Francisco. With the move to San Francisco came increasing political involvement by the temple and the high levels of approval they received from the local government. After the group's participation proved instrumental in the mayoral election victory of George Moscone in 1975, Moscone appointed George Jones as the chairman of the San Francisco Housing Authority Commission. Unlike many other figures, sorry, unlike many other figures who are considered cult leaders, Jones enjoyed public support and contact with some of the highest level politicians in the United States. Jones met with vice presidential candidate Walter Mondale and first lady Rosalind Cardin. Guests at the large 1976 testimonial dinner, dinner for Jones included California Governor Jerry Brown, Lieutenant Governor Mervyn DeMolly, and California Assemblyman Willie Brown, among others. In the fall of 1973, after critical newspaper articles by Lester Kinsolving and the defection of eight temple members, Jones and temple attorney Tim Stowen prepared an immediate action contingency plan for responding to a police or media crackdown. The plan listed various options, including fleeing to Canada or to a Caribbean media crackdown. The plan listed various options, including, oops, I just read that, sorry, um, a Caribbean or to a Caribbean, 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 wherever you're from, that's how you say it, Caribbean missionary posts such as Barbados or Trinidad. For its uh, Caribbean missionary post, the temple quickly chose Guyana, conducting research on its economy and extradition, extradition uh, treaties with the U.S. In October 1973, the directors of the temple passed a resolution to establish an agricultural mission there. The temple chose Guyana in part because of the group's own socialist po um, polit politics. <laughs> I kept trying to say politics and policies at the same time. Policies. Which were moving further to the left during the selection process. Former temple member Tim Carter stated that the reasons for choosing Guyana were the temple's view of a perceived dominance of racism and multinational cooperation in the United States government. According to Carter, the temple concluded that Guyana, an English-speaking socialist country with a predominantly indigenous population 
and with a government including prominent black leaders would afford black temple members a peaceful place to live. Later, Guyanese Prime Minister Forbes Burn Burnham, not not Burnham like Bo Burnham, 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 um, <laughs> stated that Jones may have wanted to use cooperatives at the basis of the establishment for social for the establishment of socialism, dyslexia, and maybe his idea of setting up a commune uh, messed with that. Jones also thought that Guyana was small, poor, and independent enough for him to easily obtain influence and official protection. Jones was skillful in presenting the Guyanese government the benefits of allowing the People's Temple Agricultural Project to settle within its borders. One of the main tactics was to speak of the advantages of their American presence near Guyana's disputed border with Venezuela. This idea seemed promising to the Burnham government who feared attack from Venezuela. In 1974, after traveling to an area northwest um, of, of northwestern Guyana with Guyanese officials, Jones and the temple negotiated a lease of over 3,800 acres um, in the jungle located 150 miles west of the Guyanese capital of Georgetown. The site was isolated and had soil of low fertility, even by the Guyanese standards. The nearest body of water was seven miles away um, by muddy roads. Jonestown's location stood not far from Guyanese disputed border with Venezuela, and Guyanese officials hoped the presence of American citizens would deter a military incursion. As 500 members began the construction of Jonestown, the temple, sorry, the temple encouraged more to relocate to the settlement. Jones saw Jonestown as both a socialist paradise and a sanctuary from media scrutiny. In 1976, Guyana finally approved the lease it had negotiated with the temple for over 3,000 uh, 3, acres, not 300. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In 1974, Guyanese officials granted the temple permission to import certain items duty-free. Later, payoffs helped safeguard shipments of firearms and drugs through Guyanese customs. Jones reached an agreement to guarantee that Guyana would permit temple members mass migration. For to do so, he stated that they were skilled and progressive, showed off an envelope he claimed to contain $500,000 and stated that he would invest most of the group's assets in Guyana. The relatively large number of immigrants to Guyana overwhelmed the government's small but stringent immigration infrastructure in a country where immigrants had outweighed locals. Guyanese immigration procedures were com compromised to inhibit the departure of temple defectors and curtail the visas of temple opponents. Jonestown was held up as a benevolent communist community with Jones stating, I believe we're the purest communists there are. Jones's wife, Marceline, described Jonestown as a dedicated to live for socialism, total economic and racial and social equality. We are living, we are here living communal, communally. My dad. Jones wanted to construct a model community and claimed that Burnham couldn't rave enough about us and the wonderful things we do. The project, the model of socialism. Jones did not permit members to leave Jonestown without his express prior permission. So like, it's like Cowtown, California. You can check in, but you can't check out. 
The temple established offices in Georgetown, that's literally a cult. Um, the temple established offices in Georgetown and conducted numerous meetings with Burnham and other Guyanese officials. In 1976, temple member Michael Prokes requested that Burnham receive Jones as a foreign dignitary along with other high-ranking U.S. officials. Jones traveled to Guyana with Demali to meet with Burnham and Foreign Affairs Minister Fred Willis. In that meeting, Demali agreed to pass on the message to the State Department that Socialist Guyana wanted to keep an open door to cooperation with the U.S. Demali followed up that meeting with a letter to Burnham stating that Jones was one of the finest human beings and that Demali was tremendously impressed by his visit to Jonestown. Temple members took pains to stress their loyalty to Burnham's People's National Congress Party. One temple member, Paula Adams, was involved in a romantic relationship with Guyana's ambassador to the U.S., Lawrence Bonnie Mann. Um, Jones bragged about other female temple members he referred to as public relations women, giving all for the cause in Jonestown. So technically a sex worker, I guess. Uh, or maybe a sex traffic woman. Yeah. yeah. Against her will. Uh, Viola Burnham, the wife of Prime Minister, was also a strong advocate of the temple. Later, Burnham stated that Guyana allowed the temple to operate in the manner it did on the references of Moscone, Mondale, and Rosalind Carter. Burnham also said that when Deputy Minister Polemi, I think the T is silent. Minister Ptolemy, Ptolemy Reed, okay, yeah. traveled to Washington, D.C. in September 1977 to sign the Panama Canal Treaties. Mondale asked him, how's Jim? Which indicated to Reed that Mondale had a personal interest in Jones' well-being. In the summer of 1977, Jones and several hundred temple members moved to Jonestown to escape building pressure from San Francisco media investigations. Jones left the same night that an editor at New West Magazine read him an article to be published by Marshall Kilduff detailing allegations of abuse by former temple members. After the mass migration, Jonestown became overcrowded. Jonestown's population was slightly under 900 at its peak in 1978. That's a lot of fucking people. Is it how many? Slightly under 900 in 1978. Many members of the temple believed that Guyana would be, as Jones promised, a paradise or utopia. After Jones arrived, however, Jonestown, Jonestown life, or yeah, Jonestown life significantly changed. Entertaining movies from Georgetown that the settlers had watched were mostly canceled in favor of Soviet propaganda, um, shorts, and documentaries on American social problems. Bureaucratic requirements after Jones' arrival sapped labor resources for other needs. Buildings fell into despair and weeds encroached on fields. School study and nighttime lectures for adults turned into Jones' discussions about revolution and enemies. With lessons focusing on Soviet alliances, Jones' crises, and the purported mercenaries sent by Tim Stowen, who had defected from the temple and turned against the group. For the first several months, temple members worked six days a week from approximately 6.30 a.m. to 6 p.m. with an hour for lunch. In the mid-1978, after Jones' health deteriorated and his wife began managing more of Jonestown's operations, the work week was reduced to eight hours a day for five days a week. 
After the day's work ended, temple members would attend several hours of activities in the pavilion, including classes in socialism. Uh, Jones compared the schedule to the North Korean system of eight hours of daily work followed by eight hours of study. This also comported with the temple's practice of gradually subjecting its followers to sophisticated mind control and um, behavior modification techniques borrowed from Kim yeah, Korea and Mao Zedong's China. Jones would often read news and commentary, including items from Radio Moscow and Radio Havana, and was known to side with the Soviets over the Chinese during the Sino-Soviet split. Discussions um, around current events often took the form of Jones interrogating individual followers about the implications and subtext of a given news item or delivering lengthy and often confused monologues on how to read certain events. In addition to Soviet documentaries, political thrillers such as The Parallax View and The Day of the Jackal, State of Siege, and Z were repeatedly screened and minutely analyzed by Jones. Recordings of commune meetings uh, show how livid and frustrated Jones would get uh, when anyone did not find the films interesting or did not understand the message Jones was placing upon them. Nothing in the new way, nothing in the way of filming or recorded TV shown on the commune closed circuit system. No matter how innocuous, innocuous or seemingly politically neutral could be viewed without a temple staffer present to interpret the material for the viewers. This invariably meant damning crit criticisms of perceived capitalist propaganda in Western material and a glowing praise for and highlighting Marx Marxist-Leninist messages in material from communist nations. Nations. God damn. <sighs> Big words. We'll get like halfway and then we might, we might switch. Um, Jones recorded readings of the news were part of the constant broadcast over Jones Tower speakers such that all members could hear throughout the day and night. Jones news readings usually portrayed the U.S. as capitalist and imperialist, which I villain, while casting socialist leaders such as Carmel Sung and Robert Mugabe, 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 and Joseph Stalin in positive light. Mugabe. Uh, Jonestown's primary means of communication with the outside world was a, shot, a shortwave radio. All voice communication with San Francisco and George, Georgetown were transmitted using this radio, from mundane supply orders to confidential temple business. Um, so the FCC cited the temple for technical violations and for using amateur frequencies for commercial purposes. Because shortwave radio was Jonestown's only effective means of non-postal communication, the temple felt the FCC's threats to revoke its operator's license threatened Jonestown's existence. And because it stood on poor soil, Jonestown was not self-sufficient or was not self-sufficient and had to import large quantities of commodities such as wheat. Temple members lived in small communal houses, some with walls woven from truly palm, and ate meals that reportedly consisted of nothing more on some days than rice, beans, greens, and occasionally mute sauce and eggs. Despite having access to an estimated $26 million by late 1978, Jones, yeah, 
Jones also lived in a tiny communal house, though fewer people lived there than in other communal houses. His house reportedly held a small refrigerator containing at times eggs, meat, fruit, salad, and soft drinks. Medical problems such as severe diarrhea and high fever struck half the community in 1978. Awesome. So um, the punishments that were used against members considered to have serious disciplinary problems Methods included imprisonment in a six-by-four-by-three-foot plywood box and enforcing children to spend a night in the bottom of a well, sometimes upside down. Yes, um, this torture hole, along with... Torture hole? I'm trying to be serious in that torture hole. (laughs) Giggity. Um, (laughs) Wow. Um... This torture hole, along with uh, beatings, became, <laughs> became the subject of rumor among local Guyanese. For some members who um, attempted to escape, drugs as thorazine, sodium pen- pentacol, coral hydrate, demerol, and valium were administered in an extended care unit. Armed guards patrolled the area day and night to enforce Jonestown's rules. Children were generally surrendered to communal care and at times were only allowed to see their biological parents briefly at night. Jones was called father or dad by both adults and children. The community had a nursery in which 33 infants were born. For a year, it appears the commune was run primarily through social security checks received by the members. Up to $65,000 in monthly welfare payments from U.S. government agencies to Jonestown residents were signed over to the temple. So they didn't see their money. Like Whenever they got social security checks, they didn't see their money. It all went to him. Wow. Yeah. Um, None of the 75 people interviewed by the the U.S. embassy um, stated that they were being held captive. They were forced to sign over their welfare checks. Um, or wanted to leave Jonestown. They just, because they were brainwashed. You know, it's a fucking cold. So African-Americans made up approximately 70% of Jonestown's population and 45% of Jonestown's residents were black women. And we had uh, about 460 uh, black females, 138 white females, 27 mixed females, and then 13 other females. So we had 638 females um, two, 361 males, and a total of 999 people altogether. Like, it's like the haunted mansion. 999 happy haunts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're not happy. No, they are not. <laughs> so Jones made frequent addresses to Temple members regarding Jonestown's safety, including statements that the CIA and other intelligence agencies were conspiring with capitalist pigs to destroy the settlement and harm its inhabitants. After work, when purported emergencies arose, the temple sometimes conducted what Jones referred to as white nights. During such events, Jones would sometimes give the Jonestown members four options. Attempt to flee the Soviet Union, commit revolutionary suicide, stay in Jonestown and fight the purported attackers, or flee into the jungle. On at least two occasions during white nights, after a revolutionary suicide vote was reached, a stimulated mass suicide was rehearsed. Temple defector Deborah Layton described the event as in an affidavit. Everyone, including the children, were told to line up, 
As we passed through the line, we were given a small glass of red liquid to drink. You know that phrase, don't drink the Kool-Aid? Yeah. That's where this originated. Oh. Except it wasn't Kool-Aid, it was Flavor-Aid. But everybody gets it mixed up and calls it Kool-Aid, but it wasn't Kool-Aid. Anywho, um, we were told that the liquid contained poison and that we would die within 45 minutes. We all did as we were told. When the time came and we should have dropped dead, Reverend Jones explained that the poison was not real and that we had just been through a loyalty test. He warned us that at the time was not far off, or that the time was not far off when it would become necessary for us to die by our own hands. The temple, yeah. The temple had received monthly half-pound shipments of cyanide since 1976 after Jones obtained a jeweler's license to buy the chemical purportedly to clean gold. In May 1978, a civil doctor wrote a memo to Jones asking permission to test cyanide on Jonestown pigs as their metabolism was closer to that of a human beings. In September 1977, former, former temple members Tim and Grace Stowen battled in a Georgetown court to produce an order for the temple to show cause why a final order should not be issued returning their five-year-old son, John. A few days later, a second order was issued for John to be taken into protective custody by authorities. The fear of being held in contempt of the orders caused Jones to set up a false sniper attack upon himself and began his first series of white nights called the Six-Day Siege. During the siege, uh, Jones spoke to the temple members about attacks from outsiders and had them surround Jonestown with guns and machetes. The rallies took an almost surreal tone as Black activists Angela Davis and Huey Newton communicated via radio telephone to the Jonestown crowd, urging them to hold strong against the conspiracy. Jones made radio broadcasts stating, we will die unless we are granted freedom from harassment and asylum. Deputy Minister Reed finally assured Marceline Jones that the Guyana Defense Force would not invade Jonestown. <laughs> so after the six-day siege, Jones no longer believed the Guyanese could be trusted. He directed temple members to write to over a dozen foreign governments inquiring about immigration policies to relevant, um, relevant to another exodus by the temple. He also wrote to the State Department inquiring about North Korea and Albania, then enduring a, a Sino-Albanian split. In Georgetown, the People's Temple conducted frequent meetings with the embassies of the Soviet Union, North Korea, and Yugoslavia, Yugoslavia and Cuba. Negotiations with the Soviet embassy included extensive discussions of possible resettlement there. The temple produced memoranda and, um, sorry, memoranda discussing potential places within the USSR in which they might settle. Sharon Amos, Michael Prokes, Matthew Blunt, Timothy Reagan, and other temple members took active roles in the Guyana-Korea Friendship Society, which sponsored two seminars on the revolutionary concept of Kim Il-sung. Although Jones, his executive, wow, executive partners and congregation voiced their thoughts about moving their operation to the Soviet Union, Jones had a change of heart. He stated that he preferred to stay within the Guyanese borders because of the sovereignty, sovereignty it afforded them. On October 2nd, 1978, Theodore, that is such a weird name. Like, I saw that, I'm like, somebody had a list. <laughs> Theodore. I'm not, I'm not getting the people who's got this. Theodore Himmelstein. Yeah, 
Theodore. Thank you. A Soviet citizen. Hi, Kitty. Um, visited Jonestown for two days, gave a speech, and gave a speech. Jones stated before the speech, for many years we have let our sympathies be quite publicly known that the United States government was not our mother, but that the Soviet Union was our spiritual motherland. Um, he opened the speech stating that the Soviet Union would like to send our deepest and most sincere greetings to the people of this first socialist and communist community of the United States of America, in Guyana and in the world. Both speeches were met by cheers and applause by the crowd from the crowd in Jonestown. Following the visit, Temple members met almost weekly with Timofeyev here we go, to discuss a potential Soviet exodus. So there were a bunch of concerned relatives um, of different members, and they wrote to Prime Minister Burnham, and um, they wrote to um, Congressman Leo Ryan. So on February 17, 1978, Jones submitted to an interview with the San Francisco Examiner reporter, Tim Ruderman. Ruderman's subsequent story about the stolen custody battle prompted the immediate threat of a lawsuit by the temple. The repercussions were devastating for the temple's reputation and made most former supporters more suspicious of the temple's claims that it was the victim of a rightist uh, vendetta. Still, others remained loyal. On the day after Riederman's article was published, Harvey Milk, which we might have to cover him too, Harvey Milk, um, he was a, I think he might have been a, he was a member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. He was gay, and there was a, there was a movie that came out about him a few years ago. It was a really good movie. But um, a member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors who was supported by the temple wrote a letter to President Jimmy Carter defending Jones. As a man of the highest character and stating that the temple defectors were trying to damage Reverend Jones' reputation with apparent bold-faced lies. So on April 11, 1978, the concerned relatives distributed a packet of documents, including letters and affidavits that they titled An Accusation of Human Rights Violations by Reverend James Warren Jones. Two of the People's Temple members of the press and members of Congress. In June 1978, Layton provided the group with further affidavit retain, uh, detailing alleged crimes by the temple and substandard living conditions in, in Jonestown. Tim Stone represented three members of the concerned relatives in lawsuits filed in May and June 1978 against Jones and the other temple members seeking in excess of $56 million in damages. The temple represented Represented, represented. <laughs> represented by Charles R. Gary, filed a suit against Stowen on July 10, 1978, seeking $150 million in damages. So we're going to... So Jones' health significantly declined in Jonestown in 1978. Jones was informed of a possible lung, lung infection upon which he announced to his followers that he, in fact, had lung cancer, which he didn't, a ploy to foster sympathy and strengthen support within the community. Yeah. Oh, that sounds like a narcissist. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Jones was, uh, hmm, who does that sound like? Who does that sound like? Um, Jones was said to be abusing injectable valium, quaalude, stimulants, and barbiturates. I can say all those words, but I yeah, can't well, say... <laughs> I know, Jones. <laughs> I know drugs. No. Um, 
I don't do drugs, I promise. Except marijuana. Except animals every once in a while. Yeah, um, audio tapes of 1978 meetings within Jonestown attest to Jones' declining physical condition with the commune leader complaining of high blood pressure, which he had since the early 1950s, small strokes, and weight loss of 30 to 40 pounds in the last two weeks of Jonestown. I wish I could have that. Jesus. Although he was still noticeably overweight on the final day. Temporary blindness, convulsions, and in late October to early November 1978, while he was still ill in his cabin, um, grotesque swelling of his extremities, <laughs> I think that means hands and feet and all that stuff, but extremities just makes it sound like other things. Yeah. Um, Jones often mentioned chronic insomnia. He would often say he went for three or four days without any rest. During meetings and public addresses, his once sharp speaking voice often sounded blurred, words ran together, and were tripped over. Jones would uh, occasionally not finish sentences even when reading typed reports over the commune's PA system. So, yeah. So, Readerman was surprised by the severe deterioration of Jones' health whenever he saw him in Jonestown on November 17, 1978. After recovering or after covering Jones for 18 months for the examiner, Reederman thought it was shocking to see his glazed eyes and festering paranoia face to face. He realized that an, uh, nearly a thousand lives, ours included, were in his hands. Leo Ryan, Ryan, who represented California's 11th Congre uh, congressional district, announced that he would visit Jonestown. Ryan was friends with the father of Bob Houston, a temple member in California whose mutilated body was found near train tracks on October 5th, 1978, three days after a taped telephone conversation with Houston's ex-wife in which leaving the temple was discussed. Over the following months, Ryan's interest was further accused, or sorry, aroused by the allegations put forth by Stowen, Layton, and the concerned relatives. Um, when the Ryan delegation arrived in Diana, Lane and Gary initially refused to allow them to access Jonestown. However, by the morning of November 17th, they informed Jones that Ryan would likely leave for Jonestown that afternoon, regardless of his willingness. Ryan's party, accompanied by Lane and Gary, came to an airstrip at Port Kachuma, six miles, six miles from Jonestown, some hours later. Because of aircraft seating limitations, only four of the concerned relatives were allowed to accompany the delegation on its flight into Jonestown. Only Ryan and three others were initially accepted into Jonestown, while the rest of Ryan's group was allowed in after sunset. That night, they attended a, a, a musical reception in the settlement's main pavilion. While the party was received warmly, Jones said he felt like a dying man and ranted about government conspiracies and martyrdom. And okay, sorry. As he decry, decreed, <laughs> I'll figure it out one of these days. Decreed attacks by the press and his enemies. Hang on. It was later reported and verified by audio tapes recovered by investigators that Jones had run rehearsals on how to convince Ryan's delegation that everyone was happy and in good spirits. Two temple members, Vernon Gosney and Monica Bagby, made the first move for defection in that night. In the pavilion, Gosney mistook Harris for Ryan and passed him a note, reading, Dear Congressman, Vernon Gosney and Monica Bagby, please help us get out of Jonestown. A child nearby witnessed Gosney's act and verbally alerted the other temple members. Oh, shit. 
Harris brought, <laughs> Harris brought the two notes. Harris brought two notes. One of them got his news to Ryan and Spear. According to Spear, in 2006, reading the notes caused her and the congressman to realize that something was very, very wrong. Ryan, Spear, Dwyer, and Innerborn stayed the night in Jonestown, while other members of the delegation, including the press corps, um, members of concerned relatives, were told that they had to find other accommodations. They went to Port Katuma uh, and stayed at a small cafe. In the early morning of November 18th, 11 temple members sensed danger enough to walk out of Jonestown all the way to the town of Matthews Ridge in the opposite direction from the Port Katuma airstrip. Those defectors included members of the family of Jonestown's head of security, Joe Wilson. When journalists and members of the concerned relatives arrived in Jonestown, um, sorry, later that day, Marceline Jones gave them a tour of the settlement. That afternoon, the Parks and Vogue families, along within laws Christopher O'Neill and Harold Cordell, stepped forward and asked to be escorted out of Jonestown by the Ryan delegation. When Jones' adopted son, Johnny, attempted to talk um, Jerry Parks out of leaving, Parks told him, no way, it's nothing but a communist prison camp. Jones gave the two families, along with Gosney and Badby, permission to leave. When Harris handed Gosney's note to Jones during an interview in the pavilion, Jones stated that the defectors were lying and wanted to destroy Jonestown. After a sudden violent rainstorm started, emotional scenes developed between family members. Al Simon, a Native American temple member, attempted to take two of his children to Ryan to process the requisite paperwork for transfer back to the United States. Al's wife, Bonnie, summoned on the loudspeakers by the temple staff, loudly denounced her husband. Al pleaded with Bonnie to return to the U.S., but Bonnie rejected his suggestion. While most of the Ryan delegation began to depart on a large dump truck to the Port Katuma airstrip, Ryan and Dwyer stayed behind in Jonestown to process any additional defectors. Shortly before the dump truck left, Temple loyalist, no way, uh, Temple loyalist Larry Layton, the brother of Deborah Layton, demanded to join the group. Several defectors, um, oh sorry, several defectors voiced their suspicions about Larry Layton's motives. Shortly after the dump truck initially departed, Temple member Don Ijara Sly grabbed Ryan while wielding a knife, while Ryan was unhurt after others wrestled Sly to the ground. Dwyer strongly suggested that the con congressman leave Jonestown while he uh, filed a criminal complaint against Sly. Ryan did so, promising to return later to address the dispute. The truck departing to the airstrip had stopped after the passengers heard of the attack on Ryan and took him as a passenger before continuing its journey towards the airstrip. The entourage had originally scheduled a 19-passenger twin otter from Guyana Airways to fly them back to Georgetown. Because of the defectors departing Jonestown, the group, uh, the group grew in number, and now an additional aircraft was required. According to the U.S. Embassy, arranged for a second plane, a six-passenger Cessna. When the entourage reached the airstrip between 4.30 p.m. and 4.45 p.m., the planes had not appeared as scheduled. The group had to wait until the aircraft landed at approximately 5.10 p.m. Then the boarding process began. Layton was a passenger on the Cessna, the first aircraft to set up for takeoff. After, Cessna had, after the Cessna had taxied to the far end of the airstrip, he produced a handgun and started shooting at the passengers. He wounded Badby and Gosney and tried to kill Dale Parks. He disarmed him after the gun misfired. 
Meanwhile, some passengers had boarded the larger twin otter, a tractor with a trailer attached, driven by members of the temple's Red Brigade security guards. Um, they arrived at the airstrip and approached the twin otter. When the tractor neared within approximately 30 feet of the aircraft at a time roughly concurrent with the shootings of Cessna, the Red Brigade, Brigade opened fire with shotguns and handguns and rifles while at least two shooters circled the plane on foot. There were perhaps nine shooters whose identities were not all certainly known, but most sources agree that Joe Wilson, Stanley Gig, Thomas Keist Jr., and Ronnie Dennis were among them. The first few seconds of the shooting were captured as an ENG video recording by NBC cameraman Bob Brown, who was killed along with Robinson Harris and Temple defector Patricia Parks in the few minutes of the shooting. Ryan, Brian was killed after being shot more than 20 times. Yeah. Jackie Spear, Sung Dwyer, Reederman, and Anthony Casares uh, were among the nine injured in and around the Twin Otter. After the shootings, the Cessna's pilot, along with the pilot and co-pilot of the Twin Otter, as well as the injured Monica Bagby, fled in the Cessna to Georgetown. The damaged Twin Otter and the injured Ryan delegation members were left behind on the airstrip. Okay, so before leaving Jonestown for the airstrip, Ryan had told Gary that he would issue a report that would describe Jonestown in basically good terms. Ryan stated that none of the 60 relatives he had targeted for interviews wanted to leave. The 14 defectors con constituted a very small portion of Jonestown residents that any sense of imprisonment the defectors had was likely because of peer pressure and a lack of physical transportation. And even if 200 to 900 plus wanted to leave, I'd still say you have a beautiful place here. Despite Gary's report, Jones told him, I have failed. Gary reiterated that Ryan would be making a positive report, but Jones maintained that all is lost. After Ryan's departure from Jonestown toward Port Katuma, Marceline Jones made a broadcast on the public address system stating that everything was all right and asking residents to return to their homes. During this time, Aides prepared a large metal tub with grape flavor, uh, grape flavorade, poisoned with diphenhydramine. Where you at? Right there. Diphenhydramine. Yeah. Promethazine. Promethazine. Yeah, promethazine and chlorpromazine. Chloroquine. Yeah, chloroquine, chloral hydrate, valium, and cyanide. And cyanide. Cyanide. We know cyanide and valium. Right. <laughs> Lord. Wow. <laughs> the concoction was prepared with the help of Jonestown's in-house doctor, Dr. Larry Schatt. A Texan... Wait, how is it spelled? Okay. A Texan native and former addict um, to methamphetamine, methamphetamine, who got sober with the help of Jones, who subsequently paid for his college education to become a doctor. Shaq had been researching the best ways for a person to die in advance of the foreseen mass suicide. About 30 minutes after Marceline Jones' announcement, Jim Jones made his own, calling all members immediately to the, to the pavilion. A 44-minute cassette tape known as the Death Tape, which you can still hear on, I think you can find it on YouTube, records part of the meeting Jones called inside the pavilion in the early evening of November 18, 1978. When the assembly gathered, referring to the Ryan's delegation air travel back to Georgetown, Jones told the gathering, 
One of those people on that plane is going to shoot the pilot. I know that. I didn't plan it, but I know it's going to happen. They're going to shoot that pilot and down comes the plane into the jungle and we had better not have any of our children left when it's over because they'll parachute in here on us. Parroting Jones, yeah. Parroting Jones' prior statements that hostile forces would convert captured children to fascism, one temple member stated, the ones that they take captured, they're just going to let them grow up and be dummies. On the tape, Jones urged temple members to commit revolutionary suicide. Such an act had been planned by the temple before, and according to Jonestown defectors, its theory was, you can go down in history saying you chose your own way to go, and it is your commitment to refuse capitalism in support of socialism. Temple member, <clears throat> sorry, Christine member, member, Christine Miller, <laughs> Christine Miller argued that the temple should alternatively attempt an airlift to the Soviet Union. Jim McElvain, a former therapist who had arrived in Jonestown only two days earlier, assisted Jones by arguing against Miller's resistance to suicide, stating, let's make it a beautiful day, and later citing possible reincarnation. After several exchanges in which Jones argued that a Soviet exodus would not be possible, along with reactions by other temple members to host, um, hostile to Miller, she backed down. However, Miller may have ceased dissenting when Jones confirmed at one point the congressman has been murdered after the airstrip shooters returned. When the Red Brigade members came back to Jonestown after Ryan's murder, Tim Carter, a Vietnam War veteran, recalled them having the thousand-yard stare of weary soldiers. After Jones confirmed that the congressman's dead, no dissent is heard on the death tape. By this point, armed guards had taken up positions surrounding the pavilion area. Directly after this, Jones stated that the Red Brigade is the only one that made any sense anyway, and the Red Brigade showed them justice. In addition to McElvain, several other temper, temper, temple members, <laughs> temple members, it's all kind of blending in together now. <laughs> temple members gave speeches praising Jones and his decisions for the community to commit suicide. Even after Jones stopped appreciating this praise and begged for the process to go faster. According to escaped temple member Odell Rhodes, the first to take the poison were Ruletta Paul and her one-year-old infant. A syringe without a needle fitted was used to squirt poison into the infant's mouth, after which Paul squirted another syringe into her own mouth. Stanley Clayton also witnessed mothers with their babies first approach the tub containing the poison. Clayton said that uh, Jones approached the people, approached people to encourage them to drink the poison, and that after adults saw the poison begin to take effect, they showed a reluctance to die. The poison caused death within five minutes for children, less for babies, and an estimated 20, 20 to 30 minutes for adults. After consuming the poison, according to Rhodes, people were then escorted away down a wooden walkway leading outside the pavilion. It is not clear if some initially thought the exercise was another white night rehearsal. Rhodes reported being in close contact with dying children. In response to reactions of seeing the poison take effect on others, Jones counseled, die with a degree of dignity. Lay down your life with dignity. Don't lay down with tears and agony. He also said, I tell you, I don't care how many screams you hear. I don't care how many anguish cries. Death is a million times preferable to 10 more days of this life. If you knew what was ahead of you, if you knew what was ahead of you, you'd be glad to be stepping over tonight.
Rhodes described at the, uh, a scene of both hysteria and confusion as parents watched their children die from the poison. He also stated the most present quietly waited their own turn to die. And in many of the assembled temple members walked around like they were in a trance. Survivor Tim Carter has, has suggested that like a previous practice, that day's lunch of grilled cheese and sandwiches may have been tainted with sedatives. This crowd was surrounded by armed guards, offering members the basic dilemma of death by poison or death by a guard's hand. Cries and screams of children and adults were easily heard on the tape. And if you haven't listened to it, I mean, trigger warning before you listen to it. But if you haven't listened to it and you want to listen to it, go listen to it because it is crazy. Um, as more temple members died, eventually the guards themselves were called in to die by poison. Jones was found dead, lying next to his chair in the pavilion between the two other bodies, his head cushioned by a pillow. His death was caused by a gunshot wound to his left temple that Guyanese chief medical examiner Leslie Muchu stated was consistent with being self-inflicted. The events at Jonestown constituted the greatest single loss of American civilian life in a deliberate act until the incidents of September 11, 2001. So um, there's a lot more um, that I don't think I'm going to get to it because it's just kind of talking about the aftermath and stuff. Um, but now I will talk about the deserted, the former site. So the deserted compound at Jonestown was first tended by the Guyanese government following the death. The government then allowed its reoccupation by Hmong refugees from Laos, Laos, I think it's Laos, uh, for a few years in the early 1980s. The buildings and grounds were looted by local Guyanese people, but were not taken over because of their association with the mass killing. The buildings were mostly destroyed by, the, by a fire in the mid-80s, after which the ruins were left to decay and be reclaimed by the jungle. During the visit to tape a segment for the ABC News show 2020 in 1998, Jim Jones Jr., the adopted son of cult leader, discovered the resting remains of an oil drum near the former entrance to the pavilion. Jones recognized the drum, originally adapted for use um, during mealtimes, as the drum used for drink mixtures during the white night exercises, and which he believed was used to hold the beverage mix of poison and grape-flavored punch during the events of November 18, 1978. I'm surprised Zach Bagans hasn't tried to get a hand on that. Yeah. I'm not giving you any ideas, Zach. Okay. Bagel yeah. bites. Um, in 2003, with the help of Jerry Guvia, uh, a pilot involved with the Jonestown cleanup, a television crew recording a special for the 25th anniversary of the event returned to the site to uncover any remaining artifacts. Although the site was covered with dense vegetation, the team uncovered a standing cassava mill, possibly the largest remaining structure. The remains of a tractor speculated to be the same tractor used by the airstrip shooters, a generator, a filling cabinet, a filling, a filing cabinet, an overturned truck near the site of Jones' house, a fuel pump, and other smaller miscellaneous items. Guvia also led the team to the former site of the pavilion, where they found the remains of a steel drum, an organ. I'm thinking like a piano organ, not. And and which is crazy, a bed of daisies growing where the bodies once laid. So yeah, that uh, was Jonestown. I did skip over a little bit, but if this freaking episode would have been like two hours if I would have read everything. But yeah, that was Jonestown. And um, and that's where like all of the Guyana. Guyana, Guyana, Guyana. Yeah. 
So yeah. Jonestown. Yeah, it was called Jonestown because of Jim Jones. Yeah. But yeah, what do you think of that? All I passed on saying is like the new colonists that you told him about, like in California somewhere. I thought it was like so cool. Was this in California? It started in California, but they moved to Guyana. Oh, I guess they didn't. They didn't like new colonists. Right. I mean, you already have your cult in California. It's run by Jared Leto. So, (laughs) allegedly. I say allegedly. I don't want the Joker to sue me. Come on. Anywho, um, do you have anything to add? Yeah. Yeah, really. So, um, it's their version of concentration camp. Yeah, literally. So um, if you would, go ahead and subscribe and uh, like us on all of our social media. Check out our, our uh, website, which we try to keep updated, but, you know, I'm not really good at that shit. So, um, But that's all for today. So be sure to follow us on social media. Um, subscribe to the Creep Show podcast. Um, we're on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Amazon, Audible, and possibly Stitcher. I don't know. But I'm Sarah. And I'm Ashley. And stay creepy. Bye-bye.